It is that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's rock a mic And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on the rock show Welcome to another special episode of The Rock Show. This is episode 132. Jesus Christ, we've done 132 of these. Um, yep. And we got a special guest today, um, Darren. And uh, we're talking about Sonic Youth. So, uh, Mike, how do you want to start the show? Okay, everybody. How you doing? I'm Rocker Mike. Uh, I want to welcome back Darren. You remember Darren? He, he did the show on the Beastie Boys with us about, God, that was almost two years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, way before. Yeah, man, way before. time is flying. Yeah, that was before the pandemic. Yeah. So, you've been asking me to do a, a Sonic U show for a long time, so I finally got to it. Not that I don't want to yeah, do a right. show on them. I think they're a great band. <laughs> we've just been, we've been so honest, but I'm glad we're getting to it now, and I'm glad you're with us today. Yeah, um, same, same with you. Thanks, thanks. Now, Sonic Youth to me, and I'll, I'll ask your opinion on this because I know you're such a fan. Um, they're kind of like one of the most important bands, I think, of all time, really, as far as like underground music goes. But mm-hmm. they're they're kind of like a bridge, proto punk and early punk music, and then what became later, like you know, the '90s grunge and 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 eventually even some some of the punk that you heard in the 90s that was a little you know right. a little slick a little slick yeah. but you know some some of it was decent but i just they, think like, like if it wasn't for them okay if it wasn't this racket which is you know they, they really <laughs> had you know noise down to a, a science especially those early records um mm-hmm. i don't think you know you would have had the same kind of scene come out of Seattle and, and, and some of these others, I think they were very important to that. Um, now, one thing too is, is in the eighties when I did, they were, they were really considered to be kind of like the elite kind of, of the underground. All right. Right. Um, you know, so there, there really wasn't an alternative music scene in those days. And they really didn't fit any category. But they held on in New York City to this kind of status of, you know, they could really do no wrong. Okay. And I get it. You know, some people really were turned off by them. There's like a, a pretentiousness. Uh, I felt that some of their fans had especially early on. I get it uh, in a way because they were kind of like a hometown and nobody wanted them to get big and they had to stay small, <clears throat> small, excuse me, and had to stay this underground band. But they were really, you know, that really wasn't what they were about. They never said they wanted to, you know, just be always underground. Every album did a little bit better than the last. Okay, right. Early and, on. And- Go ahead. And no, it's like what I want to say about that is that it's kind of like that's a lot of the situation with a lot of other bands, too, that sure. they themselves may not buy into the concept, but it's the fans in the press that might 
put a different light on what they're doing and what the the culture around their music is like versus yeah like, i mean I, bands like obviously nirvana and you know uh some, some of the, the grunge bands that really became yeah. huge went through this but i felt that with Sonic Youth, I felt it, it was particularly unfair in a way, because when when Goo came out, and even Daydream Nation, and then Goo, mm-hmm. and then everything after, like you know, people were like, "Oh, they sold out," and, and I'm like, and "Come I, on, you know." Yeah, and I think it's like uh, they were. N- they weren't really appreciated by American radio or even the, no. the people buying records for, first. for a very long yeah. time. Yeah, for and a very long we're time. We're talking about the New York scene, like even the Village Voice kind of shit on their first couple records. Like, they, yeah, they, yeah. Like, we're gonna uh, talk uh, about uh, that. We're gonna, yeah, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna get into that because yeah, they um, kind of dumped and, on and them they, and, and they kind of came around to them, or you know, it might have been like uh, you know, the snake eating its own tail in that respect. You know, at that point, in time. yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, yeah, Rob, so me, when I saw it, it was in 95. It was a lot of producer in 95. Okay, okay. Let me ask you, Rob, what do you think of Sonic Youth? You know what? Those... I just thought they were very, you know what? To me, they were very loud, very experimental. It was like, it was like, it was like a formation of like, it was like alternative rock with experimental rock. It was very like different. It was different, you know, the sound, everything. Oh, like, it was like, you know, what? It's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you they know? have some, you know, some crazy, crazy songs early on. Um, one thing that always fascinated me, and then we'll get into the history, is their, 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 their fascination with Cameron Carpenter. Okay, and, and how yeah. you know, they, have, they have like, you know, that song Tunic is about her. And then they covered for the Carpenters tribute record "Superstar," and yeah. they, you yeah. know, and they and Kim Gordon would talk about and how they were such big fans. And I think that I always liked that because I'm like a well, it's not a secret anymore because I'm about to say, it, but I am a Carpenters fan. I admit, okay. <laughs> they're like, I do think they're like a, a, just a you know to the side I, I could listen to their music and they're great songwriters. <laughs> they were great songwriters absolutely get, yeah yeah and you know I, who I else think like, was a carpenter's fan i don't mean to interrupt you you know who else no. was a carpenter's fan that'll blow your mind fucking uh lemmy from motorhead oh, i uh. believe that for sure yeah <laughs> but it's, it's almost like a it's almost like uh they saw themselves more of like a extension of what the carpenters did you know it's like we're gonna take kind of like this this image and this songwriting style and just be like we're just going to stretch it out and brutalize it but it, we still got the soul the, the bottom line is that the soul is still there you know yeah and yeah. that's true uh in all of sonic youth's music there definitely is a you know a a, a genuineness yeah, yeah yeah you know to yeah. it and uh all right a lot of notes here we got a big show we're gonna talk about the 38 38- and that's so, amazing. 30 years. Sonic Youth was formed in 1981. What'd you say, Rob? I say 30. I can't believe that it lasted 30 years. That's amazing. 30 years. Yeah. 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 So they formed in, in 19. 19- and it's three founding members are Thurston Moore, Kim Gordon, and Lee Ronaldo. Now, Moore was born in Florida in the town Coral Gables on July 25th, 1958. Um, 
it, when he was a kid in 67, his family moved to Connecticut. And he was raised in a somewhat strict Catholic family. He went to Catholic school for a time. Uh, in 1976, when he was 18, he enrolled at Western Connecticut State University. But he only went one semester and didn't work out for him. He would leave the school and move to New York City to an apartment on 13th Street between Avenue A and Avenue B, right near you, Rob. Okay. And uh, he was very interested in joining up with the punk scene at the time. Eventually, he was involved more with what became the post-punk no-wave scene, which kind of started around 1978, 79. Um, what were you describing no-wave scene? I didn't get that. Oh, okay. Uh, well, Lydia Lunch. Okay. Okay. Uh, James, you know, James uh, Chance. James Chance and the Contortions. Uh, Lydia's band, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. Yeah. Uh, kind of. You know, a, a bastard child of punk rock with kind of like a darker edge to it. I don't know how to describe it, really. Uh, was it like goth music, right? No, no, no. Not it, it was almost like, a, that, you know, like a, lot, a lot of things that were happening right before it happened. I think it was just kind of like smash them all together and being like, okay, we're a little bit of goth, a little bit of punk, a little bit of kind of like this free jazz uh, type of experimental music. That. Yeah, it was way more experimental than punk yeah. was. Like okay. they're using like you know custom. It was done <laughs> like a, yeah. a punk format, okay, where where you know you had a lot of songs that were short, okay, but still experimental, not long drawn out. Uh, but even some bands had long songs too, so it was kind of a mission. Different things. Now, um, uh, he would play guitar in several bands. I'm talking about Thurston Moore. Uh, he would be in some several bands briefly, and then he would meet guitarist Lee Ronaldo in that process. Uh, both were interested in experimental guitar techniques, and they liked to be tones and sounds using these experimental techniques. Uh, both became associated with the avant-garde guitarist and composer Glenn Branca. Uh, and they were members of Glenn, Glenn Brock is what was called the guitar orchestra. All right. Uh, this was something that was, you know, very avant-garde, kind of in its own scene at the time. Uh, it was, a, a, you know, been around for a while. He was a very uh, experimental guitar player. And he had a, a an orchestra of guys that were just like that. Okay. So Lee Ronaldo was born February 3rd, 1956 in Glencove on Long Island. He studied art and he graduated from Binghamton University. He taught in several bands before forming Sonic Youth, but during his time in the Glen Branca Guitar Orchestra, he used to design his own guitars. And that's very important to, to understand in, in, the, in the makeup of what became the Sonic Youth sound. I mean, they actually built their own guitars. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, at least he did. Okay, I'm not so sure about Thurston, but I think he did. Um, Kim Gordon, I think, he, I think he still does too. No, I'm just saying. I think Lee Ronaldo like still does build guitars like custom and sells them at auction and for other people and shit. Yeah, I, I, wow. I've heard that he does that. Yeah, yeah, he still does. That's a nice little side project, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, now Kim Gordon was was born April 28, 1953. 
in Rochester, New York. But at the age of five, I moved out to Los Angeles because I took a job as a sociology professor at the University of California. Los Angeles also. Um, she attended university high school. And an early boyfriend of hers was the future Oingo Boingo frontman Danny Elfman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she went with Danny Elfman before Thurston. So she attended Santa Monica College for two years and then transferred very briefly to York University in Toronto. Now, after not liking the Canadian winters too much, she would move back to California pretty quickly and attend the Otis College of Art and Design. She would live in Culver City, Venice Beach, and also L.A. for a time until she graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in 1977. Three years later, in 19 terms of pursuing a career in art, Kim would relocate to New York City. And it was here that she immersed herself in the post-punk no-wave scene that we mentioned before. Uh, In 1980, she joined the short-lived band CKM, which featured members Christine Hahn and Staten, uh, Staten Miranda, and then also her. So that's C.K. and M. Uh, through Staten, she met Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo. That's how they all met. Now, Thurston met Kim Gordon at the very last gig of a band he was in called The Coachman. Uh, the two hit it off immediately, and Moore suggested that they start a band even though Kim really didn't know how to play an instrument. Uh, she sang in that band, CKM. So two others, uh, two other people, one named Ann DeManis and another named Dave uh, Key, Kie, formed a band with Thurston and, and uh, Kim. Now, they appeared under different... Settled on the name Sonic Youth first. First was a band called uh, Male Bonding, there was a band called Red Milk and the Arcadians. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and uh, uh, crazy stuff. Finally, they settled on Sonic Youth. Now, do you know how they did that, Dara? You know how they got the name? I do not. I do okay. not. They mixed Fred Sonic Smith from the MC5 okay. and right. reggae artist Big Youth. Nice. Okay, Sonic and Youth. Okay. So the band. Uh, joined something called Noise North the Noise Fest Festival, eighty one, and Lee Ronaldo. Before they they actually played the gig, um, Thurston asked Ronaldo to, you know, join the band, and he was playing with the Glen Branca Orchestra at the time. Now he agreed, and you had this lineup that was going to be Kim, Thurston, and Lee with no drummer. Okay, Kim was was on bass at the time, and that was really the first time she ever picked up a bass. I guess Thurston gave her a couple of lessons, but she she really didn't know how to play. So actually, what they would do is they would take turns playing drums sometimes. These these first few shows that they did. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So they would kind of like one one song, somebody play drums. Next song, somebody else would do it until they met drummer Richard Edson. Okay, and he would be their first official drummer. Now, Glenn Branca would sign Sonic Youth as the first act on his new record label called Neutral Records. Um, in December of 81, recorded five songs at Radio City Music Hall. 
Okay. And just to mention that that was where Ramones recorded their first album. It was in the same studio. Um, this EP featuring the tracks, The Burning Spear, I Dreamed, I Dream, She Is Not Alone, I Don't Want to Push It, and The Good and the Bad is often, it, people consider it their first album, even though it's an EP. And that's right, the yeah. one with them on, them on the cover. Do you have that album? Cool. I do not have it. I do not have it in physical yeah, form. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, but, you know, you, you've heard it. You're familiar with it. Of course. Yeah. Like yeah. Burning Spear is a Sonic Youth classic in, in my book. You know? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, now, it's also the only Sonic Youth album where they use conventional tuning for the guitars. Okay. Regular just, you know, tuning by ear or, you know, with the keys. Okay, because they used to use all kinds of weird tuning methods with different yeah, amounts did. of strings and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And, you know, um, didn't they even tune things like, you know, they would tune something, a guitar with a drumstick or something like that. Crazy. Yeah, they used to play with drumsticks. You play with like butter knives and, yeah. you know, you know bows and things. Yeah. <laughs> when you do that, Rob, you get like totally different kinds of tone. So you get these weird sounds coming out of your guitar. Now, um, the album itself, the CP really was, was mostly ignored, but a few key members of the American music press were sent copies and they did give some favorable reviews. The few reviews that there were, were, were pretty favorable. Richard Edson would quit after the release of this replaced by Bob Burt. Now, in the early days of the band, they formed a friendship with New York uh, noise rock band, The Swans. Okay, do you remember The Swans, Rob? I think so. Yeah, they were kind of similar to Sonic Youth in in a, in a, well, not, a little more like song-oriented. Uh, the Swans are the first band I ever saw at CBGB's, just throwing it wow. out. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's true. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> now, the two why bands. Did they go, why did they go with the the Sonic Youth? Because the Swan are definitely a little bit more. You can actually listen to their music. <laughs> what? What? Well, I don't know. So, Sonic Youth did eclipse them. Uh, I don't really. Yeah, which is amazing. Know why? Yeah, I, I, I think the Swans. I think they weren't consistent, um, at least as far as band members. But yeah. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, they just, they never got out of that, like, you know, small club phase, really. You oh, know? I so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they just got the record deals that Sonic Youth got. Uh, I think a lot of them went out to different projects and shit. They had, they had other yeah. things going on in their careers that they wanted yeah, to yeah. devote more time to. Exactly. Like, they exactly. themselves, I don't think they ever, like, really broke up, broke up, but they just weren't, like, a consistent group that Yeah, to put I think after a while, yeah. they... To do other things, I I, God, I yeah. can't remember because last time I saw the Swans was probably like 1988, <laughs> something like that, <laughs> long time ago. Now they, I think they occasionally make an appearance, but I haven't heard of them in a long time. Um, now the two bands became close, and they would share rehearsal space. And Sonic Youth embarked on their first tour in 1982, actually opening for them. Okay, and. Not too long after that, they would eclipse them. During a second tour with the Swans in December, Thurston Moore and drummer Bob Burt began having some problems. They 
were not getting along. Now, Moore was very critical of Bob Burt's drumming during the tour. Uh, Burt would be fired and replaced by Jim Sclavunos. Okay. Jim Sclavunos is a great fucking drummer. Okay. He, he played with the Cramps on a couple albums, a couple of tours. He's been with, uh, you know, he's a real hired gun. Okay. If you need a good drummer, you call him up. Now, wow. yeah. Now, a full album was in the works. They were working on that with producer Wharton Tears, who had a studio in the basement of a building that he was the super in in Chelsea. Okay. Now, Jim Sclavunos would play on most of the nine tracks recorded, but would quit during the sessions. And Bob Burt was called back. Now, eight of the nine songs for the album called Confusion is Sex were originals. Uh, the one cover on there was the, the, the cover of the Stooges, I Want to Be Your Dog. Okay. Great, great uh, cover. Yeah, great cover. <laughs> great cover. Probably one of the best. And a lot of yeah. people have done that song. Now, one thing to be mentioned is that Bert agreed to come back, okay, uh, at some point. He, but he agreed, but basically he, the band had to take him, took him back, but had to agree not to fire him again after the upcoming first European tour in the summer of 83. So Sclavunos left. He came back, but he said, hey, I'll only come back if you don't fire me again. <laughs> right. So that's, Sonic that's pretty Youth, funny. <laughs> that, is, that is kind of funny. Now, Sonic Youth was very well received in Europe. All right. Uh, but the, the New York press pretty much ignored them. OK. Um, Mike, the how many rock- bands we done? And they, that's what happened. They, they don't do good here. But then in Europe, they're like rock stars. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting. Um, I don't know what it is. Sometimes bands in, in New York can't get that traction. And then, you know, it even happened to like Blondie. Like they, yeah. they released the first album and it really wasn't doing anything here, but they had a top 10 single in Australia. Yeah. But think about Kiss that started in New York. Kids started in New York and then he really right. blew up into Detroit. Detroit put kids on the map. Yeah. We talked about that. I think it's just it's like I've there's seen... so much. What's that down? I, I was saying, I, I just think it's just, there's so much stuff, especially around that time, where it's hard for like one group to really get noticed, let alone get an article written about them for their album yeah. review. You know? Yeah, I mean, the music scene was changing a little bit by that point in the early 80s. Um, you know, punk had kind of fizzled out and you had this mishmash of all things. Even the no wave scene was kind of dying out by 83. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there was a, a, you know, you had everything from, uh, you know, the noise rock scene that they were into Madonna. I mean, Madonna was living <laughs> yeah. at, that, at that time, you know, so it was really all over the place. Now, that scene they were in was ignored. But slowly they noticed after coming back from Europe that the press was starting to take a little interest in them. Now, Village Voice, Robert Christgau, we've talked about him many times, <laughs> was, was, was critical of that whole noise rock scene of the Swans and Sonic Youth and other bands. Um, and, you know, 
Kim Gordon felt kind of actually wrote a letter to the voice and to him in particular saying, you know, you should support local music. And his attitude was, we're not obligated to. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think I was. I think at one point they even, and I think this was like Thurston's move actually was to rename in terms of like a, like a performance of kill your idols. Yes. One of the songs off of confusion of sex to like, uh, Robert. I killed, I I killed Chris Gow with my big fucking dick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He changed the words to the song to that. Yeah. You know, they had a feud. they had a feud going for a while. Um, right. You know, and, and Robert Chris Gow, would come around to them. Okay. Um, and they would make up and, and they, you know, no more feuding, but, um, he's, he's been mentioned in so many different things. And, and I mean, there's a Lou Reed live album called take, take no prisoners. And during the whole album, Lou is bashing the New York rock critic scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, He's just, and he's naming people by name. And he mentions Robert Criscow as a piece of shit and everything. You know, it's fun. It's fucking hilarious. But, um, now Kill Your Idols, okay? That was the upcoming EP. And, um, it, it was released on November, in November of 1983. And it did feature Bob Burt on drums. And it was originally released on the Zenser label. Okay, eventually it would be released here, but at first it was really an. Um, the five songs included the title track, uh, and it was very similar to the kind of sound you were hearing in Confusion is Sex. Okay, it was very dark, very noisy. You agree with that? Yeah, very primal. Yeah, bottom bottom heavy for sure. Right, right, right. A lot of noise, a lot of feedback. Um, you know, I just mentioned Lou Reed, and and I. You have to say how much the Velvet Underground influence is banned. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's kind of like a straight line from from what Lou Reed and the Velvets were doing right to Sonic yep. Youth. You know, if you don't yep. hear it, if you don't hear it, you know, really, it's, yeah. it's definitely all <laughs> yeah. over the place. You need to yeah. go back and do more research, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need to take another look if you don't hear that. All right, so there was another European tour planned in 1984, um, and they were going to be doing their London debut. They hadn't played London yet. And it went disastrous. Okay. Is this where more destroyed like the equipment on yeah. stage? Like yeah. lost more, shit? more mm-hmm. lost his shit because they had um special equipment brought on stage to I think help with uh you know the guitar tones and things like that. And it all malfunctioned. All right. And Thurston just smashed it all to bits on stage. He just broke everything. Okay. And <laughs> him doing that resulted in rave reviews from the New Musical <laughs> Express and Sounds magazine. How fucking crazy is yeah. that? <laughs> they actually it, you know, got more famous this when they, for breaking the shit, you know? Yeah, is this when the Hendrix comparison started coming out? Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Or oh, Pete Townsend smashing guitars on stage. Yeah. You know, when they got back to New York City, they were so popular for that, okay? And, and they started to be able to book Local gigs on a regular basis. Okay, they, so you got to say the tour was a success, right? Though that London tour, even though it was a disaster, it still made them popular. It's a perfect example of of, of no press is bad press. Okay, yep. if they talk if they talk about you, you know, in the, the 
the, the village all, voice all, and all picked all up on it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, that same year, uh, 1984, Thurston and Kim got married, and Sonic Youth released the album Bad Moon Rising. This album I like a lot. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was going to tell yeah, you. That's, I think this is my favorite album from them. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely one of my favorites, if if not my favorite. There's just something. Of, and I think a lot of people don't really go to that one so much, right, Deron? No, absolutely. I, I think, honestly, maybe they do, maybe they don't. It depends on what you're really trying to get out of it. Because if you're, if you, if you're trying to get into Sonic Youth and you start from the beginning and you don't really click with uh, Confusion of Sex, then Batman Rising is definitely going to be kind of like the... The salt of that. I, I, you, know? you know what? I, I have to agree with you because I think that was my experience. In in '83, someone had played "Confusion Is Sex" for me. Now I was mm-hmm. like, I was about 14, 15, okay, and I kind of didn't get it. All right, and I don't, you know, any of the first album or EP or anything before that. And yeah. then um, same person when when "Bad Moon Rising" came out. This is a friend of mine. He was a couple years older than me. He played that, and I said, "Oh, okay, now I get them." You know, but Death yeah. Valley was good. What's that? With lunch, Death oh, oh, Valley is sixty-nine. Yeah, one of, my, yeah. One yeah. of my favorites. Definitely one of my favorite songs. And I can remember that video being shown. Okay, like when you went to uh, shows at like the Ritz. Okay, they used to have a big screen that came down in front of the stage. And in between the bands, or definitely when you came in before the show started, and I can remember seeing that on stage, you know, that video being played. It wasn't going to be played on MTV, but I remember seeing it there, you know. Now, this album, Bad Moon Rising, it was sort of an uh, an album of Americana. Okay, yeah. uh, it, it kind of was supposed to serve as a reaction to the state of the nation at the time, the Reagan years. Okay, now. The album was produced by Martin Beasy. And notably, uh, one thing that, that's very noticeable is that there's no really no gaps between the songs. Every song kind of runs into the next, right? Now, mm-hmm. Lydia Lunch, like you said, Rob, appears on yeah. the track Death Valley 69, one of my favorite songs from them. And uh, it, that song is actually, an insp- and, and, and if you see the video too, it's an inspiration from the Manson murders. I'm fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the video has like dead bodies all over the place and everything. It's like nuts. Okay. But um, this whole album was really influenced by like dark things that were going on, like, uh, you know, heavy metal, um, you know, the Satanism behind heavy metal, which was controversial at the time in 84. Okay. Also, um, one one theme is uh, the song Ghost Bitch. There's a theme of American Indians. Okay, that Lee Ronaldo mm-hmm. wrote this song. Okay, uh, so it, it's kind of like all over the place, different kind of American experiences and history. Um, the album, some critics called it kind of morose. Okay, um, one uh, there was one critical uh, um, article about it that said uh, it, it's it's having all the horrible beauty of a mushroom cloud. <laughs> you know so i mean it, it sounds like it goes what they were going for you know <laughs> I, I would think so yeah i, I yeah. think i think if i was you know thurston and or, or Kim, i mean i'd be like yeah we nailed it you know one of my favorite songs on it is society as a whole which i, I mean, love that song i think that's, that's a great that's song yeah. what the album is like you know <laughs> yeah yeah that's true that's true um 
Now, it, it was their first release on Homestead Records, okay? The band had a falling out with Glenn Braca, and uh, it was over some disputed royalty payments. Now, in the UK, the album came out on a label called Blast First. Bob Burt would quit the band in 1985, saying that he was bored playing Bad Moon Rising every night, okay, for over a year. What they did is they used to play the album from beginning to end, okay, and then they would do some older songs. And uh, he was sick of doing that. He was replaced by drummer Steve Shelley, formerly of the punk band The Crucifix, who I remember very well. <laughs> That's um, a great name. It is a great name. Now, the band was so impressed with his drumming, Steve Shelley, that he never actually auditioned them. They, 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 you're in. That's how, that's how much they liked them. So Sonic Youth at the time, they, they, they were really uh, interested in getting on SST records. Now, if you remember, Rob, when we did the show on Black Flag, okay, yep. uh, Greg Ginn, that was, that was the Black Flag label, SST records. Yep. And they would actually sign with that label in early 1986, and they began recording the Eval album with Martin Beasy again at the helm. Uh, another great album. And the band gained some national attention when they signed to SST because they were the first New York band to really yep. do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, SST was more of a West Coast thing. Uh, but that would change. Okay. Uh, other New York bands would follow suit right after that. Um, the New York Times declared that Sonic Youth was was making the most startling original guitar music since Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't help if you smash in your instruments and shit too. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now, when Eval was released, People Magazine actually picked up on them and said it was the oral equivalent of a toxic toxic waste dump. <laughs> I guess they slammed them. <laughs> wow. I bet, you know, People Magazine, you read that when you're online in the supermarket. You know what I mean? You yeah. Pay attention to that. Like, oh, yeah, what is this music that we're feeding our children? Exactly. You know, <laughs> well, well, you know, um, 1986, this was the, the era of the PMRC. Absolutely. Okay, that was in full force. And, uh, Rob, I got to tell you, the next show we're going to do, we're going to blast the PMRC because it's on the heavy metal band Wasp. And they had wow, a yeah. they had a huge you know fight with the PM that next week. Okay, uh, yeah. Now the Eval album, Neil Young actually got a copy of it early on, and he said the album was a classic. He fucking loved the album. He did. Yeah. He did. You know, um, he loved it. I know. I know. And I, and I, you know, Thurston must have loved that because he's a Neil Young fan. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. Now. Eval was the third studio album recorded by the band and the first with new drummer Shelley replacing Bob Burt. Released on SST in May of 1986, it featured they have before, like Lydia Lunch returned all dead vocals for the track Marilyn Moore. Why? Okay, of the, of the Minutemen. Okay, began mm -hmm. a short collaboration youth at this time by playing bass on the track in the kingdom number 19 you know that song right Darren in the kingdom yeah. number yeah, 19 yeah. okay yeah yeah he I, I I for some reason I didn't know that I, I, I when I was doing my research I did not realize that he played on that or I forgot it's so long ago but listen to the song and the album 
And I hadn't, I hadn't listened to that album in 20 years, Evolve. It's been forever since I listened to it. Yeah, and, I think uh, it was one of those ones that I picked up first. Yeah. And once I started getting into Sonic Youth, I went back to the back catalog. And at first it didn't click with me, but, you know, as I've grown older, it's definitely been like, oh, shit. Well, what I always liked about it, I, I always liked a version of Bubblegum. Yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the kid, the Kim Fowley song. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's like uh, when I first heard that song, I don't think I was familiar with the the original. The original, you know? yeah, yeah. Very interesting cover to do. Um, now, Watt was hanging out with them because he had just lost uh, Minutemen member D. Boone in a car crash. Okay, so the Minutemen were basically done. Uh, he lost his friend, and he was very depressed. He almost wanted to give up music, Mike Watt. I'm glad he didn't because he went on to a lot of a lot of good things. And he, I, the last I saw of Mike Watt, he was playing with the Stooges. Okay, which, wow. yeah, wow. he was playing. He was playing bass with the Stooges, and uh, that was that was. I saw them a couple of times in the early 2000s. He was great, but he carried on. Okay, and uh, he had a friendship with them. Now he also began collaborating with Sonic Youth on their side project called Chicone Youth. Okay, now Chicone Youth was the side project that they had named after Madonna's real last name. Okay, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I always thought that side project was funny. They had that, they had that version of uh, in, Get Into the Groove, the Madonna song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, they released an album called The Whitey Album, okay, as Chicone Youth. And it also featured a cover of Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. They want, you know, what, what I thought was funny about Chicone Youth, I, I think they, they, they did, in, in my opinion, at the time, I'm trying to remember now, I think a lot of people thought Sonic Youth was like this serious band, okay? And that they didn't have like this funny side, okay? And I think Chicone Youth kind of showed that a little bit. Yeah, but for them to do yeah. addicted to love in a karaoke booth, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It was recorded in a, in a karaoke booth. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. But I, I think going back to the like what we were talking about earlier, I think they yeah. were serious, but I think they were very self-aware and kind of played that against their audience and the critics at the same time. You know? Yeah, I, 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 oh yeah, I think they're very. They were very in their in their peak. I'd say they were very calculating, very clear in every move they made. Right. Or at least, or at least try, yeah, at least tried to be based on like the their history with various labels and shit like that. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. If if you gave them, you know, you know, ten dollars, they would try to make it out of into eleven, but they right. were only getting like eight dollars. You know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, and, and well, they made more with less because they were used to doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, being on a, a shoestring budget, not selling a lot of records, but yeah. but. Even with that, I think even those early records, um, I mean, they didn't make a lot of money at first, but there was, no, a, but build were, up, there was a build up, you know? Yeah. And they were trying to like leverage a lot of people that they knew in the scene too. Like um, that, that blast first records. Right. Th that, that was really like a distribution. Yes. From a, from a record label that Patty Smith started just because she wanted to give exposure to Sonic Youth into the UK where that's where, right. like, they knew and she knew that they actually had people that would buy their shit, you know? Yeah. Well, I think Lenny Kay was a was an early fan um, mm -hmm. and probably got the word over to Patty as to what was going on with that. Because, um, really, I think at that point, by 81, 82, 83, 
the Patty Smith group was done, but she was kind of like still on the scene a little bit. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Though. I mean, definitely. I mean, she was involved in, in some of that, especially the distribution. And that would be a problem with some of the early albums is the distribution. You know what I mean? Even if they, people liked it, you couldn't always find it. Yeah. In those days, you know, now in 87, Sonic Youth came out with a concept album called Sister. Okay. Uh, it was partly inspired by the life of sci-fi writer Philip K. Dick, who we all one of my favorite. Oh, yep, one of my favorites. All, yeah. Right, who we all know wrote Man in the High Castle. Okay, great and book, great book, great TV show too. Um, the 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 sister that's mentioned in the title was Dick's fraternal twin. Okay, he had a, a fraternal twin who died right after birth, and the memory of this sister haunted Philip K. Dick for his whole life. Okay. So sister ended up selling about 60,000 copies. Not bad. Okay. For the time and uh, received very positive reviews. Um, the problem was though, SST wasn't working out for them. All right. Uh, they weren't paying them right. There was arguments about the payments and, uh, other kind of like administrative deal dealings they had, you know, definitely was a problem. Okay. So Sonic Youth's next album uh, would be the double LP daydream nation, which really, I think broke it for them. Okay. Yeah, you know, as far, that's, that's the as, far one. as exposure, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, goo would be the one that would really, you know, the next one would really push them. But daydream nation is when you finally saw them on MTV. Yep. All right. Yeah. Now, that was released on Enigma Records, and it was also distributed by Capitol Records. And, and Capitol at the time was partly owned by EMI. So they were kind of like in this weird place between a major label and an independent. Okay, Enigma being independent, but they did have major label distribution. And yeah, this, you, you're dealing with Capitol Records, that's huge. Even yeah. EMI is pretty big. Yeah, 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 and um, right. EMI owns, you know, owns capital partially or something like that. But um, um, in those days, you know, there were a lot of indie labels, and what was starting to happen in the late '80s, if you remember this, Rob, is is the 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 majors were starting to gobble them up. Okay, yeah. and over the next ten year period, that would happen, and by by the late '90s, that was like. There really weren't too many indie labels left. Nah. You know, not 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 putting out anything big, you know. Um, there's indie labels now, it's it's a little bit different, but there's usually some kind of major is, is behind it. Okay. Now, this nineteen eighty eight album, Danger Nation, was a double album, and it was a critical success right off the bat. The song Teenage Riot was their first song to get any kind of significant airplay on college radio stations or modern rock radio stations. I remember hearing uh, Teenage Riot on the radio. Um, I think WLIR had already changed to WDRE maybe at that point by 88. I don't remember. It was either LIR or DRE. Okay, it was 92.7 in New York City. And, you you know, you'd, you'd hear alternate what was – they didn't call it alternative music. They called it modern, yeah. modern rock or college rock. College rock stations like um, um, like WFMU, like Freeform 
radio stations used to play them. They were playing them anyway, to be honest with you. WFMU yeah. kind of was like that, playing that term, them. That term college rock always mystified me. It's like, is it just music that they play on college radio? Or is it an actual genre? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I lived through those times. Yeah. And, and for a brief period, it was very cool. But then it, it just became like, if you were on it, you were a dick. So, it yeah. Was like, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, I mean, R.E.M., is like to me like the epitome of a college rock band. Okay. Um early on their early stuff I do like. And then they got kind of douchey while they were still in that kind that concept. You know, <laughs> but um yeah, I mean college radio stations were popular in the eighties and uh um, yeah. Stony Brook, for instance, out on Long Island was one that I used to listen to. Um they had a Stony Brook University was was a very cool place. Uh, I saw the Ramones there a couple of times. They used to have the shows in the gym. Okay. But the gym was oh, wow. like, the gym was like, you know, the size of, you know, Mass Square Garden. You know, it was huge. <laughs> okay. And uh, they, they would, on uh, WLIR and when it became WDRE, they used to give away tickets to shows like you would win if you answered a question, right? You call in 10th yeah. call or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell you, I won so many times to see the Ramones. They told me not to call anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it was like because Ramones would play there like every year, and and I would win. <laughs> I, I I would call up. They'd be like, "No, not you again." You know, like, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this album was doing well. Okay, Daydream Nation and MTV was playing the video for Teenage Riot. Now, unfortunately, despite the Capitol Records and EMI push in the distribution. There was problems with it. You couldn't find the record. I remember Damn. this. Okay. I remember wanting to buy it and having to order it, which was strange. I figured I could just go in the store and get it, but they didn't have any copies and you had to order it. It took like two weeks to come, you know, back when record stores used to do that, you know, they'd order something for you. Now, um, more and the band began looking at this point for a major label deal. And, you know, this is, this would become, uh, their experience with Geffen. Okay, now in 1990, they released their first album on Geffen, and the album was called Goo, and it was their biggest selling album to that point. Uh, the song Cool Thing, which featured an appearance by Public Enemy frontman Chuck D, was a huge hit, and the video received heavy rotation on MTV. Uh, the album got to number 96 on Billboard's Top 100. I, I thought it did a little bit better than that, but that's as high as it got, you know? Uh, they were playing that, the hell out of that, that video. Remember that, Ron? That album was pretty good. The video, too, everything. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, there was that other song, Dirty Boots, right? That's on Dirty there. Yeah. Yeah. Tunic, was, my friend, Goo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that that, like that, that was when you... <laughs> I remember... I played the hell out of that at, at CBGB's Pizza Boutique all the time. Okay, they had it on the jukebox. And I remember, uh, um, what's his name? Oh, the guy from the Senders used to be uh, uh, Pierre. Used to be a, uh, um, a uh, bartender there sometimes. And we used to listen to that record, that album on the jukebox all the time. And uh, he'd, get, he'd just give me money to, you know, play it. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was when everybody really became aware of that band, I think. Right? Would you agree? 
Yeah, I mean, that's like you said, like when they finally got distribution through Geffen and shit, that's kind of like, I think a lot of people were chomping at the bit to get their earlier stuff, especially Daydream Nation. Now a lot of their yeah. stuff is now available. You know? Right, right. Now, Sonic Youth, they signed with Geffen. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Now, you just said yeah. about the distribution. The, yeah. bands, the band signed a $300,000 five-album deal with the label, okay? Which I, I thought about that, and I said, wow. I said, they must have – they had to have restructured that contract in the five out, within that five albums because they had to I think, have made I think more they than did. They had to, right? They yeah, definitely they did. Because I think they ended up doing eight albums with Geffen, so – I mean that that probably comes with the restructuring, you know, more money. Yeah, um, I don't th- I don't think they did eight. I think you might be thinking of the. Um, are you thinking of the 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 SYC experimental ones? Because that no, was no, no. On, yeah, that I'm was thinking about the studio. The, I'm thinking no, but I'm talking about the studio albums themselves. Is is it? I don't know. We're gonna get into it. I don't recall yeah, it being yeah. that many, but it, it could be. I could just be forgetting one or two. Um, but. Um, they signed a $300,000 deal for five albums. And the main reason that they signed this, it wasn't so much the money. It was the clause in the contract that gave them complete control of all creative content. Now, not too many you know, labels would do that. So they actually had complete yeah. control. And um, the band, however, wasn't really happy that the album was not going to be released on Geffen directly. Okay, even though it was a Geffen label, it was technically on a subsidiary called DGC Records. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what put Goo out and the rest of the and the, and the rest of the records Okay, that they would make would be on DGC. I think maybe I, I'm not sure if it was for the whole five albums or more, but the, definitely the first few in the contract was under DGC. Yeah. Uh, which which they they wanted to have that Geffen label on their record, but because Geffen, even though it was a major, it was a somewhat new major label, so they right. they you know it was a big signing for that label to even sign Sonic Youth. Now, um, the guy that produced Daydream Nation, Nick Sansano, he was brought back in to do Goo, but soon tensions rose between him and the band. Okay, after he kind of criticized the album's direction to, to, to Thurston. And, uh, you know, he was like, where, where are you going with this, with this album? Now, Geffen appeared to be pushing for a more commercial record, something maybe more radio-friendly than what they had in Daydream Nation. Now, Geffen, to this day, denies that. Denies that. They say, Geffen Records say, no, we were not trying to, you know, polish Sonic Youth. Okay, but Sano anyway was released after the band lost faith that he could even finish producing the album. Whatever the relationship they had with him, it just fell apart. Okay, when when he started producing this, now veteran producer Ron Saint Germain was brought in, and uh, you know his his list of oh, I mean this guy's list of producers living color. He the bad brains. Okay. He was brought in to finish producing Goo. Okay. Now, Cool Thing and the song Tunic, which is a song for Karen Carpenter, were written by Kim Gordon. Interesting. The album, its working title that they, that they told Geffen it was going to be called, 
was blowjob. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I think so much, they for, did... so much for commercial viability. So, right, 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 right. So we're, you know, we're going to have creative control. We're going to call the album yeah. blowjob. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the band has even said that they kind of did that just to see what the label would do. Okay. Right. Now, Goo would sell 200,000 copies. Critical success for them. Okay. The critics love that album. Um, <clears throat> The album, uh, well, the next, but I want to mention something that came out in 1992. But I want to talk about they did um, in 1991. And that tour was, was filmed for a documentary called The Year Punk Broke. Okay. And it was a movie of the European tour they did in 1991 with Nirvana, Babes in Toyland, Dinosaur Jr., Gumball, and the Ramones were on a few gigs for that. Okay. And uh, it's a cool movie. Uh, I think YouTube's probably got it up for free. I think, I think I saw it on there, uh, but uh, it's cool to check out. I mean, cause you see Nirvana and I, I'm thinking it might've been Nirvana's first time in Europe. I think 91. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, basically the, the, you know, smells like teen spirit was just starting to, get popular uh but sonic youth headlined this tour okay i believe so you know it was kind of like nirvana was was uh, you know maybe even a little less or equal to them at this point you know um the next album was called dirty and that was released in 1992 it was produced by butch vig okay who had just produced nirvana's nevermind album okay he was was brought in Right. I mean, he's, he's yeah. a great, great producer. Um, he Which was, was SST bro- too, right? Uh, maybe. No, 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 no. <laughs> maybe sub pop. Um, no, they were, they was a man. That was a ma- uh, Nirvana. Uh, Nevermind was a major release. Right, Rob? Yeah. Nirvana was yeah, everywhere. Yeah. The album was no, everywhere. Nirvana, Nirvana never had anything to do with SST. Oh, I thought they maybe like put out the first couple albums in SSD, but they had like distribution with somebody else or something like that. <clears throat> no, I think uh, I could be wrong. They were early on; they were on Sub Pop, I believe. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Which was Dude, the that, you know, Seattle that album? Thing. They, they didn't even think the album was going to be that successful, and it, it overachieved. Right. It totally overachieved. That's what I'm saying, you know. So, like, never mind. <laughs> no, <laughs> literally, so, never mind. <laughs> it's okay, Darren. It was 30 years ago. That's all right. Yeah, um, I was barely there. Yeah, and what were you like two? <laughs> no, it was like 1990. I was five. Okay, there you go. There you go. Hey, Mike, do you remember the video they did for 100? percent Yes. Yeah, yes. Spike Jones. Yeah, Spike Jones video. Yeah, and Jake J- Lee was in it. He was the skateboarder. How funny is that? That was one of his it, first videos. Is that that's, that's pretty- the, is is that the one where Kim Gordon's wearing the stone shirt that says "Eat Me"? What's this video where she's wearing the? Oh, she's fuck. she's she's front and center. I think I think I think it's that. Video. It might not have been maybe. I thought just thought like one hundred percent was more like a skateboarding video. Oh, is it just all skateboards? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that. I think I've been in it, but I can't recall like what they were wearing. <sighs> maybe it was. Uh, that it was cool. been it, it might have been. It might have been. It might have been dirty boots. Yeah, the video, the video for that where like all the little grunge kids are like making out and stuff and they're like hanging <laughs> yeah. out right and then she's got like these black and white baseball 
jersey, you know, black with white sleeves and the Rolling Stones tongue, and it says "Eat Me." <laughs> On top yeah, of it. yeah and, and, and MTV had to block it out. You know, you couldn't, nice. you couldn't see the evil yeah. part. Okay. But um, he was uh, – Butch Vig was brought in to kind of throw in a little bit of a grunge influence to Sonic Youth. But they didn't want to lose their sense of avant-garde or, you know, whatever creativeness that they had. Now, 100%, Sugar Cane, uh, the Kim Gordon song, Drunken Butterfly – did, to me, they mm. were all standouts on that. I love the Drunken Butterfly. Swimsuit Issue is good, too. Swimsuit Issue is amazing. Yeah, that's a great that, song. And, and that was basically like uh, them talking shit about Geffen Records. Because they had like a bunch of sexual harassment lawsuits against I, them. <coughs> all right, that's true. There was, uh, yeah. there was stuff going on with... Uh, what was the Geffen guy's name? David Geffen? What was his... Yeah, David Geffen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, uh, I forget the line, but it's like... It was about a casting uh, couch, basically. Like you know. Yeah, it, I forget what the actual the last line is, but it's like, uh, don't Cause she, like. Cause there's, there's lines in there. She's going, you know, I'm not going to give you head. Yeah, like <laughs> I'm not going to give you head. I'm just trying to work at my desk or something. Right, like right. That. I'm, just here, yeah. I'm just here, you know. I'm just here for dictation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they're like, she, she's like naming all of like the models in the the, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue of that year. Yeah, it's like the lyrics of the song. <laughs> right, right. It's true. It's true. Now that album would peak. Dirty would peak at number eighty-three in the United States, uh, but it would actually get to number six in the UK. Did very well there. That's now, amazing. From, it is. It is. Now from nineteen ninety-two to nineteen ninety-three, Sonic Youth toured behind the Dirty album, and it was called uh, the Pretty Fucking Dirty Tour. Okay, and an EP called Whores Moaning. Mm-hmm. Which featured most of the sugarcane uh, B sides. Okay, so mm-hmm. different versions and stuff from Dirty that was not put out. Um, in 1993, the band contributed the oldest song, The Burning Spear, to the AIDS benefit album No Alternative, which was produced by uh, the Red Hot Organization. Okay, we've, we've talked about this before. I forget who else did that. I think it might have been REM, if I remember right. Uh, they also contributed a track. Um, in 1994, the band released their next album called Experimental Jet Set and No Star, which peaked at number 34 in the United States, which was their biggest selling record up until that point in the States. Uh, that was a, I, I was surprised that that got to 34, I, because really the only song that got any attention was Bull in the Heather. Yeah. Okay, which I think is a great song. I remember when that, when that came out. Um, what I was starting to notice at that point, and I don't know if, if you agree, is I think there was an, I don't know if they did it on purpose or it was just the way they wanted to do it or did they, they get pushed, pushed to do it. It seemed they were pushing Kim a lot more than they had before. You agree with that? I don't necessarily know that's true. Like, I don't know. They, they, she's always written probably like half of the songs i mean i think i think like shelly's influence probably comes in a lot more later than yeah. around this time so yeah. i think it's always been up to this point more of a kim and thurston thing um yeah 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 i maybe, I, I, maybe on, maybe on vocals yeah and maybe because it's like a you know <laughs> a, a girl in a band so to speak that once they're getting like more commercial exposure they're gonna put her like you know in the videos and have her singing things that maybe she wouldn't have before but 
Yeah, yeah. they'll have a front and center because they want to sell the sex. You know, it's a woman. That's that's what that's what I'm that's what I'm 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 saying. Like, is there a little bit of a hypocrisy going on there, Daron? Maybe. I mean, she's singing about not being. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's just like it's just like songwriting, yeah. though. I mean, I don't know. It it it's Sonic Youth is always approached like the sexuality bent, like uh-huh. ironically almost, you know. Oh yeah, it, you know, you're having an album called Blowjob. You know, it's funny. You yeah, know, but, yeah, yeah. You know, confusion of sex. You know, right. it's kind of like the. So I think we're kind of falling into that trap by thinking about that. <laughs> like, yeah, we're yeah. confused. Well, we're I confused mean, by what they're doing. Well, there you go. You know. Well, good point. Good. I mean, you know, it could just be to trip you up. Yeah. You know, I, I get it. I get what you're saying. Now, um, the popular song off of Experimental Jet Set No Star was Bull in the Heather. Um, and there was an accompanying video with that that featured Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill. Okay. Um, the album itself, to me, was a little bit more mellow than Dirty. Okay. Yeah, same. Uh, it, same. Yeah, and... and uh, the album cover featured their faces on it, as opposed to every album since the first one that featured some work of art. Okay. The first yes. album, that first EP had them on it. And now this had it on it, but all those albums in between had, you know, things on the album cover that didn't feature the band. Okay. Wasn't this also um, like a, like a let it be riff too, you know, it had like their four faces. Quite the squares uh, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like right, each, each square had a different face. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, now, also in, in, in 1994, uh, Kim and Thurston had their first child. Okay. Coco Haley. Uh, she was born in 1994. Um, they released that same year, the cover version of the Carpenters song, Superstar. And that was for the tribute album, If I Were a Carpenter. Okay. And, uh, I love that I bought. Um, there's a lot of great covers. Uh, Shonen Knife does Top of the World. Uh, Jeanette Napolitano from Con- does Hurting Each Other. Uh, Red Cross does uh, Yesterday One. Fucking great. Okay. Uh, and they came out with a video for it. If you, you've seen this video, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Very cool. I like that song a lot. I like the way they do it because there's a trippiness kind of to that yeah. song and they they kind of like exaggerated it now which is kind I of like what this... i which is kind of like where i see the fascination with the carpenters because it's like you could definitely like pull that out of the carpenters music but not a lot of people really thought to during the time you know? yeah yeah i mean it was an interesting twist to their career i felt yeah to have them because they were actually doing interviews about their influence of karen carpenter by karen carpenter and I thought right. that people were, you know, would, would go on for 15 minutes asking them questions. Like, wow, they're really into the carpenters, you know? What I mean? <laughs> it's, it's fucking kind of cool. Now, yeah, yeah. Um, now, this was when, uh, Rob, I think this was when you might have seen them. Because yeah, uh, this I day, they, the had, they, right, they headlined Lollapalooza in 95. Yeah, whole yep. pavement. By that year. Yeah alternative music really had gone mainstream. Yeah. Okay, by 95. I was saying like to people like alternative, alternative to what? Because all, that's all there is. Okay? Yeah. There, you know, it really was kind of like an interesting time. I didn't like all of 
these bands. Um, I, I some bands I only liked a song or two or three, but uh, it was an interesting time because you were hearing a lot of loud guitars on the radio. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it was, and a lot, a lot of good shows. These Lollapalooza. I went to a couple of Lollapaloozas. Uh, they were on. good. I've been to two yeah. or three. They were very good. Randall's Island. Well, was Randall's, Randall's Island was a was a very cool place to see a show. Okay, and uh, there's a sense of being trapped when you're there because you're really just like you can't get out. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Get out. And Mike, do you remember them? The Homer Palooza and the Simpsons. I remember that episode. Yes. Right. 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 They were. Didn't they spoof Sonic Youth? Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were in the episode. Yeah. They're in the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it was them, and I think yeah, Perry Farrell. Smashing Pumpkins right. there, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Perry from James. Well, he had his porno for Pyros, I think, at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, the next album in 1995 was called Washing Machine. And it kind of represented a shift in their sound away from more punk rock or no-wave roots towards more experimental kind of long jams and longer arrangements. Um, the album was recorded in Memphis at Easley Studios, where bands like Pavement and Guided by Voices also recorded. Uh, Memphis allowed Sonic Youth to work in a more relaxed state. Since recording in New York City, what would happen is everybody was aware that they were recording something. Okay, So it was, it was kind of like a little bit of a circus sometimes. So they went down to Memphis to do this. Um, it was produced by a guy named John Sickett and also by Sonic Youth themselves. Okay. They, they shared the production on this. Some tracks like the diamond C were 20 minutes long. Okay. And that was stuff that they really hadn't done before. That's a great song. Okay. Um, and I'll be honest with you. This was around the time I kind of started to tune out with Sonic Youth and, uh, I wish I had it because they did have some good stuff after that. But, you know, doing the, the, the notes, I really wasn't familiar with much past this album. Okay. Because they have a couple of releases, uh, quite a few after this that I would kind of had tuned out on. But uh, I remember when this came out, I bought it, had the washing machine on the cover. And I'm like, what the fuck? You know, fucking washing machine. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, bought it, you know, and, the, and, 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 you know, in those days, even in 95, when you were buying a CD, okay, vinyl really wasn't around anymore. If you were buying a CD, you would take it a chance because you didn't have a chance to listen to it. It wasn't like you checked it out on online, okay? You kind of be like, all right, it's their, it's their new album. I'll buy it. What the hell? They didn't have, they didn't have like, listening stations either. No, you couldn't no, just, like, rip really. it out of the package, not, you know? Not, not really. I think... <laughs> yeah. uh, I think Virgin Records had that for a while, the big store. Okay, mm-hmm. they had it. But, you know, the idea of, like, going into a giant store with, like, a thousand people in there and sharing headphones kind of skeeved me out. You know, yeah, so I never, sure. I never <laughs> wanted to do that. <laughs> you know, but um, it, they, they, they were working and they were going in a little bit of a different direction. And I did like this album, but I kind of they went off my radar for a while after this. So yeah, I- it, it's, inter- it's interesting you say that. Cause like, you know, this album came out in 95. So I was just about 10 years old at this time. So I wasn't like into Sonic Youth even at that point. But yeah. once I started going back and started listening to like, not like the older ship, but more of like the more recent releases when I was in high school and things, I was right. like, and even to this day, I would say this is probably one of my favorite albums of all time. 
Yeah, a lot of a lot of fans say that, and it's definitely one of their best. That's for sure. It, it, yeah, to me, it's like there's not a bad song on this album. Right. It's just it depends on what you're looking for, especially it's, from a band like Sonic Youth. You know, you got to kind of like it, it, it threw me. It far. threw me. It threw me a curve, but like in a good way. Okay. Yeah. But but for me, my personal experience with them was kind of done after this album. You know, I didn't yeah. really you know pay much attention to them after that. I don't know why. It's just they kind of like, they ran its course with me. Uh, but, right. but I went back and I listened to some of the other stuff that we're going to talk about coming up. It was good. It wasn't bad. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know why I just didn't follow up. But I had already been listening to them for 10 years. But no, yeah, um, you're right. Like, th- this album definitely marked like kind of a transition away from what more like a, a, like, like a bottom, bottom heavy experimental punk kind of vibe to more just like Still experimental, but more like melody based and melody kind of like dueling, dueling guitars type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot yeah, more jam. So yeah, right now in '97 they started the um, label Syr. Okay, and it was their own label with the intention of releasing kind of improvisational and experimental material. Um, they would feature song titles in different languages. Okay, and liner notes in different languages as well. Uh, the third of these SYR releases, SYR 3, was called Invito a Cielo. Okay, what's that in Spanish? Invitation to Heaven? Yep, Invitation yeah. to Heaven. My three years of high school Spanish is working <laughs> very well. Okay, finally. Finally. Okay, now um, that came out in 1998, that third release, and it featured guitarist Jim O'Rourke, who would later actually become an official band member. Um, various tracks from the SYR series would be added to their live sets, um, but some of the songs they hadn't released also ended up on the next Sonic Youth album, which was called A Thousand Leaves, and that came out in 1998. So they had this kind of like side project. They were, they were you know, records for Geffen, and uh, they just Mike, had this. They were taking an album almost every between a, a, a year or every two years. They were taking something out new. So it's it's amazing, like when they did break up, that they broke up, but they were taking out music almost to the end. Yeah, they really were. Um, and they were also doing stuff on their own label. They released a yeah. bunch of those, bunch yeah. of those SYRs. I think there's like six or seven of them. That's six, that's impressive. Yeah, that's very impressive. Yeah. Now. The Thousand Leaves record was their 10th studio album, okay? And it was the first to be recorded at their new home studio in Lower Manhattan um, in, their, in their loft space that they have down on... Uh, don't they live on Murray Street around there somewhere? I yeah, think. I think it was 50, 51 Murray Street. Yeah. Is that, yeah, I don't know the exact number. I know they still... I, I, yeah. think, I think... I'm not sure. Um, now, the album got to number 85 in the States... And it broke to number 38 in the UK. All right. Uh, what is this? The song, okay. Yeah. It was a song called uh, Sunday. Right. And that was released as a single. And they had a music video for that as well that featured actor Macaulay Culkin in it. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think I, I did see that video before. Um, on July 4th, 1999. Sonic Youth's instruments and stage equipment were stolen during a tour in Orange County, California. That's crazy. And yeah, now almost 30 guitars and basses were stolen 
Though mm. so over the next 13 years, some of them would be recovered. Now, like, like we said in the beginning, some of these guitars were one of a kind. Okay, that, that, okay, uh, mm-hmm. or they were custom made. All right, so to lose this was a huge disaster for the band. Yeah. Okay, because they, you know, to, to gain certain tones, they would use certain guitars and they knew that. They knew what they had and they knew how to, how to use it all. And now it's, it's just gone. Okay, totally stolen. Uh, crazy because it's almost like stealing, you know, it's like stealing a diamond. What are you going to do with it? You know, like a giant diamond. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, with it? It's like you got to find someone that's going to buy it. But yeah, but, it's know, like it's, it's obvious this is stolen. You know? Yeah. It's <laughs> obviously, yeah, this is the Sonic Youth guitar. There's only one. Okay. <laughs> in the fucking world. Okay. So it's, they would get some of these guitar backs over the next 12, 13 years. Uh, but crazy. the band, yeah, but the band, was forced to start from scratch with all new instruments. And all they had was like just some studio guitars and stuff that they, they kept around that they really didn't use. So they really had to figure out their own sound again. Imagine that. Okay. You know, I guess it's, it's not good to be so rely, relying on the instruments in that way, but I'm sure that, that was, you know, the way it worked out. Yeah, you know? but it's it's like it's like part of your art too. It's like right, somebody exactly. coming in and like like stealing all your like uh, you know easels and canvas and you know right. your, your acrylic your favorite your, fav- your favorite brushes and all that stuff. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Yeah. You know, all all the things that you've reused to create this like aesthetic for but over a decade at this point has just right. been you know wiped off the face of the earth for all you know. You know? Exactly, exactly. Now um, the album that came out of this, like you know kind of thing was called new york city ghosts and flowers and it came out in 2000 uh they ended up opening for pearl jam during the east coast leg of that band's 2000 tour um new york city ghosts and flowers was almost like a response to having all of their equipment stolen they had to restart studio guitars okay that they really didn't use much or hadn't used in a long time and it was like they they decided to to use beat poetry as an influence on this album. Are you, Darren? Yeah, but I mean, it, I think it kind of shows in kind of the narrative we're building around it. This is definitely an album that I haven't really listened to that much of because of it, it, it's it's not that it's not a Sonic Youth album. It just is completely different than anything, anything. that they've done prior or since. You know, well, like it's. Even since it's true, okay. Yeah. Um, stuff they did after was a little more back to basics, you know. But this yeah, this was this that, was like a, a an album that they wanted to use beat poetry. Uh, artists like William Burroughs and and um, uh, Jack Kerouac <laughs> and you know those guys. Okay, I guess they were reading these these books and the album cover an inspiration from something William Burroughs himself had painted. Okay, uh, I think it was a variation of a of a painting that that William Burroughs had done. Um, I don't think it, it, it you know fan bought it, but you know it was something that was was totally different, like you say, from from anything they had done. Yeah. So, in two thousand and two, they ended up releasing the album, okay, which brought on Jim O'Rourke officially as a full time member. Okay. 
uh, he was multi-instrumentalist. He could play guitar. He could play bass. He could play keyboards. All right. So he was brought in for the Murray Street album and he became a member. Um, they began recording this album on August, in August of 2001. But the September 11th attacks halted the recording. Okay. Obviously, they had to evacuate. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That right down in a for sure. Right. Yeah. Anybody below Canal, they, it was a while before they came back, you know. Um, the band benefit show for the Trade Center victims on October 9th. Um, now, standout tracks from the Murray Street albums are The Empty Page. Okay. Uh, they had a song called Karen Revisited, which was written by Lee Ronaldo. Okay. Uh, Sympathy for the Strawberry. Uh, Coco Haley, uh, their daughter, is one on the cover of Murray Street. There's two girls on the cover, and on the back, you got the Murray Street street sign, right? Yeah. Okay. On, the, on the back of that album. Um, now, during this period, the band participated in the production of the documentary film called Kill Your Idols about the New York City punk scene. The film came out in 2004. Um, they also released their next album in 2004. It was called Sonic Nurse. And it featured songs like Pattern Recognition, The Unmade Bed, and a song called Kim Gordon and the Arthur Doyle Hand Cream. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I don't think I've ever heard that song. Have you heard that song? Of course. I mean, this is this is actually one of my other favorite albums from yeah, them. For yeah, sure. I, 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 never, I, don't know, I never got into this album too much. Is it... Is it about what I think it's about? <laughs> it's not. It's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's it's almost like a hand salve. Like I don't know. It's, it's one of just one of her moisturizers she uses on her skin. I guess is what the song's yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, origi- I mean, like, originally they said they were going to call it Mariah Carey and the Arthur Doyle yeah. hand cream, but they decided not to. Do, they decided not to do that. Okay. But no, it's uh, like I was around on this time, and this is kind of the album that came out like as I was really starting to get into the band. You know that that kind of set me back backwards in time, and then made me a fan for life at this point. Like, how did you first get into Sonic Youth? Like, what was the revelation there? I mean, honestly, around this time, I was probably bootlegging fifty albums a week easily okay. off of you know Kazaa and LimeWire, and you know it's kind of like uh, you know it, it's, it's like even as a big bootlegger, I was still spending more money, and I still spend more money on music than anybody else I know. You know. So I just found something I liked and learned. I, of course, I knew about the history of Sonic Youth, like being into more of like the alternative scene. Right. You know, not even just like with friends, but also through relatives and shit like that. Because, you know, a lot of the bands that you mentioned, you know, heading into the late 90s, you know, like Pavement, Sonic Youth, uh, even like sort of like the late era grunge stuff, Soundgarden, for instance. Right. Like, by, by the time I was like listening to the radio in the late nineties, early two thousands, like all those bands had left the radio and it was all just yeah, full of like yeah. biscuit and corn, back, you know, like all, all that music again. Yeah, yeah. All, all the crap. So it's like, oh God, there was like something I missed by a few years. I'm gonna go back and see what that was like and cool, like cool, part of that cool. environment. Now what they did in two thousand and four with this album is they hooked up with Lollapalooza again, okay, and they would they were touring with the Pixies and the Flaming Lips, okay, but the tour ended up getting canceled because of lackluster ticket sales. Yeah. Music, music was changing. Okay. So it never yeah. really took off. And 
Um, by 2006, uh, Jim O'Rourke would leave the band, okay? Um, and they would kind of work on an album that would be intentionally to kind of bring back their earlier sound. And that album is called Rather Ripped. Um, some of their stolen instruments were actually recovered around this time, okay? And uh, so they were able to kind of duplicate sounds that they had before. Um, they ended up doing the Bonnaroo Festival that year in Tennessee, which I believe is on a big farm. Okay, if I if I remember right, with that. Yeah, that it's like is. two hours yeah. south of Nashville. I think it's like literally on a. It's like it, in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah, it's wow. just like camping out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, 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 yeah on like somebody's farm. Okay, they also released the compilation of rarity, rarities in 2006 called uh, The Destroyed Room, B-Sides and Rarities. And this was the last release that they put out on Geffen. And they would leave the label due to a kind of dissatisfaction in the promotion of their last few albums. So that would be the end with their affiliation with Geffen. In 2007, the band became one of the earliest big-name rock bands to play China. And uh, they were brought in for a tour by a music company called Splitworks. Um, they would sign with indie label Mat- Matador Records in 2008, and they would release their most successful album of all time called The Eternal. All right. And The Eternal actually peaked at number 18 in the United States, their most successful album in the States. Um, and they dedicated this album immediately to deceased. Stooges guitarist Ron Ashton, who had died that year, sadly, of a heart attack. Yeah. Um, in, in 2010, the band uh, scored and composed the soundtrack of the French thriller drama Simon Werner à Disparu, which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. They released the soundtrack in 2011 as the SYR 9, okay, uh, so that was like the ninth experimental thing that they were they were releasing there in that series. Um, however, uh, things would end and would end quickly. Um, on October 14th, 2011, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon announced that the end of their, their marriage was over after 27 years. Um, they performed their final concert on November 14th, 2011 at the... Uh, uh, SWU Music and Arts Festival in Brazil. That would be their last show. And the following week, Lee Ronaldo stated in an interview that Sonic Youth would be ending for a while. But in her 2015 biography, Girl in a Band, Kim Gordon says the band has split up for good. So that would be the end of Sonic Youth. Rather, kind of sad, quick ending. Okay. Um, I heard that, you know, Thurston was diddling around with his secretary, okay, and, you know, Kim caught him or something like that, and that ended the band. Basically, that's how it ended, right? Yeah, it was like, uh, I think, yeah, I think she was working for the band or a label in some capacity, perhaps, but she was somebody that had been in, like, their ecosystem for more than five years, and I think there was, like, a thing on the side with him and with, with her and Thurston for a while, and... Yeah, Kim. Kim didn't really know about it, and it finally like broke out that they were a couple, and that was fucking it, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and 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 I'm pretty sure she was like Thurston's new girl was pregnant less than a year after that. Wow! <laughs> oh, he had a baby with her. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, that I didn't know. Wow. Okay. That's yeah. what the band split. <laughs> yeah. She was the she was the Yoko Ono of Sonic Youth. Kind of like a, you know, like a, kind of kind of pulled the rug out of the band because as you, yeah. know, you mentioned, I mean, like that they were they were they're getting back in their groove. They're seeing a lot of critical and commercial success. Like they were by all means could still be together, putting out great records and doing shows. You know, yeah. Obviously, uh, they've all moved on to other things where they're still making music and art. And well, she's and she's released uh, she's released a couple of solo records, which I've listened yeah. to, and, and they're, they're yeah. somewhat interesting. Uh, way more experimental, I think, than what I usually like. But right. uh, you know, but it's it's her. You know, it's great to see her out there. I mean, I, you know, yeah, of course. But, yeah, and it's like, yeah, Thurston's like put out a couple records. I think he was even doing solo projects before the band officially broke up. Cause it's like a yeah, I think bug. I think he had stuff in his own name, right? Like some same same, same with Lee, I think too. I forget the yeah. name. I forget the name of the band that he was involved with a little bit. Right, but, right. Yeah, they had some other stuff going on. So that's what we got for you, Mr. Rossi. Wow, Sonic man, Youth. what a what a history, man! Thirty years covering ninety minutes, not bad. Um, not bad, yeah, yeah. right? Ten, yeah. ten years every thirty minutes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, hey, Durant, thank you for doing this, man. Uh, thank you for all the information you brought and the input. And like always, Mike, thank you for all your information. And um, we're definitely um putting this show out, and I think it's gonna be one of the most popular shows we have. You know, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, yeah. You want to give our little social media handles, Rob? Where can we find you? Um, you can find me on anything Getting Lumped Up, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just look up um, Getting Lumped Up. And we also got the Rock Group um, fan page that got over 1,000 members. And uh, it keeps growing every day. You know, thanks to everybody for the support on the Rock Group. And it's a, it's a, it's a place where you can talk about rock, no politics, no nothing me. We no. just talk about good old-fashioned rock and roll and pop and punk music. Yeah, Mike, and, where can uh, I find you? You could find me on Instagram. I'm Rocker Mike Two One Two. You could find me on Clout Hub and MeWe under Rocker Mike, and you could find me on Facebook under Rocco Mike. Just uh, <laughs> in touch with my in touch with my Italian side, Rocco Mike, and um, also like you said, the the Rock Show Pod, podcast group page. On Facebook has doubled in the last couple of weeks. Um, I've made a lot of efforts to reach out to as many people as possible. A lot of people have signed up, and uh, it's doing very well. And uh, I think I want to make an announcement, Rob. Like what we talked about today. Yes, there's, 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 there's going to be a little bit of a different format starting next year. I believe in January we're going to start this. Um, we're going to do a rock show every other week. Okay. And we're going to do a rock show, and then we're going to do a conspiracy 420 show. Rock show, then we're going to do a conspiracy back and forth. Okay. Um, I think that uh, you know, the conspiracy show needs to get a little more attention. And also, um, you know, it, it'll give me more time to prepare for the rock shows and, and do better shows for everybody. So I think, I think that's going to work out. Sounds good. Sounds uh, good. And- and Darren, how can we get in touch with you? Uh, you can see me around town, um, but you can find me online at Live Like Memorex. Uh, so that's Memorex like the tape. Live, uh, like Live, Memorex. Like, Live Like Memorex, yeah. Are you sitting in a chair with your hair getting blasted back and, you know, like 
that like the always Joe always <laughs> usually listen to Watchmen team when I'm doing that usually Watchmen team or uh, Bad Moon Rising <laughs> there you go that's cool yeah. that's cool all right, all right. So thank you everybody out there, thank you everybody to... thanks guys for having me yeah and remember people don't get drunk get locked up locked up Podcast you will hear that will be music to your ear. You'll learn about bands you love or may not know, and it's only here on the rock show. Let's get lumped up on the rock show.